Hey everyone, welcome back to Stories from the Influencer Economy. This is Ryan Williams back at the Rhino Lab. So happy you're here. Each episode I speak with a creator, an entrepreneur, or an entrepreneur, someone who works at a company. We talk about how these people reach their next opportunity. The Rhino Lab stands for reaching your next opportunity. With sincere gratitude, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I love all the subscriptions on iTunes and people who leave a review. I'm grateful for that. It really helps the show get discovered. I also want to give you a free action and lesson guidebook for how to collaborate with influencers, pivot your idea to reach the right market, to thrive and build a business in the digital age. Go to InfluencerEconomy.com to get the free workbook. Again, go to InfluencerEconomy.com for the free action guidebook, 100 ways to launch your business in the new economy. Hey everyone, welcome back to Stories from the Influencer Economy, the Rhino Lab. So excited that you're here this week. My guest is Patrick McGinnis. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You are a prolific author. You've given multiple talks at Google, and you wrote the book, The 10% Entrepreneur, How to Live Your Startup Dream Without Quitting Your Day Job. You are an entrepreneur, and you travel the world speaking about how people can live their startup dreams and how really we need to hedge our bets. And the brilliance of your book is that so many people think they're an entrepreneur and they go all in and in, in, in some sort of entrepreneurship uh, opportunity, start a company, a bakery, a startup, a technology brand, and they fail. And your, your whole assessment is you need to hedge your bets and only invest 10% of your time in these activities, right? Exactly. At least to begin with. Maybe you go up from there, but start with 10%. And the 10% is, is great because people have this romanticized dream of being an entrepreneur and they watch you know, Shark Tank and they, they think that that's the, the, the mission in life is to own your own company, but it's not right for everyone. So what was your initial inspiration for finding that 10% of, of how you should invest your time? Yeah, so I, I decided to do this because I had been working in corporate America and AIG actually in, in an investment division of AIG. And in 2008, the company blew up, even though it was a trillion dollar business. Can, it had, can you tell everyone what AIG is? AIG, American International Group. It was the kind of the poster child for the 2008 financial crisis. The company went from having over $100 billion market cap to basically being owned by the US government and being worthless. And it occurred to me that I had always put all of my bets in sort of like working in these big companies because I wanted the stability. I come from a small town and I had been investing in startups, but inside of a big fund. So I didn't have any personal risk. And so then I thought, well, maybe I should just become an entrepreneur and, and embrace risk and, and really try to have a direct relationship between my hard work and the outcomes. Because I felt like after this experience at AIG, where I had nothing to do with the reasons why the company failed, maybe, you know, going forward, I should put myself in a position to have a direct correlation between my work and success or failure. But I also realized that I was not prepared to be a full-time entrepreneur. And despite the fact that it, I'd watched TV and I'd seen all these shows and I read all the articles and went to all the conferences, that there was this whole industry out there that was trying to convince me that I should throw everything, you know, caution to the wind and become a full-time entrepreneur, that didn't really make sense with my lifestyle. And that's where I kind of got stuck and came to 10%. So they, they, people are saying, like, just go all in, start your own company, and what do you mean by lifestyle that it wasn't right for you? Well, I have a rent pay. I have 
living expenses. I have people to support. And and I, I, had, I had seen friends of mine who had saved up a couple years of salary, had a startup idea, quit their job and started living off of their savings to build the company. And you know what usually happens when people start companies is it takes a lot longer than they ever thought. It's a lot harder than they thought and they have more ups and downs than they thought. And so you know, when you're in year two of living out of your savings, it's really emotionally tough. And I just didn't want to be there. I never wanted to be living out of my savings. My thought was, why don't I find a way to participate in entrepreneurship, but in a way that was really sustainable. So I've actually done the whole living off your savings thing and I've stole stock and it's terrible. It really taxes like your significant other, your spouse, uh, your family because you're stressed. And going all in really is overrated. You know, people think that there's no other alternative. So if you're going to bring this to the to the masses and someone's listening from Des Moines, Iowa where I grew up and they're, you know, have a full-time job and they want to start a restaurant or they want to start an online business or an online course, you know, what would you recommend to them? So the great thing about this is, you know, we all think about entrepreneurship is Silicon Valley and it's having the connections and getting the engineering degree from Stanford and having, you know, well-connected parents and all this sort of stuff. That's yesterday's vision of entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship has changed a lot thanks to the internet. You can start a company now with, you know, basically what it costs to have dinner in Des Moines, Iowa, because you can get a website up and running. You can get social media getting you sort of customers and promoting the business. All kinds of way to do it. What you need to do, and and you know what I what I did uh, when I was trying to figure out how to take my experience and make it something that anybody could do, was I, and I looked around and I talked to people all over the world, all over the country, and all kinds of industries, is you have to sit back and say, you know, what are the resources I can commit to this? So I have a full time job. I have a little bit of time here or there, or maybe I have a little bit of money here or there, or maybe I have some of one or some of the other, but none of both. But what do I really have that I can invest? What do I want to do? What am I good at? What are my interests? What am I passionate about? And how do I combine those things with my resources to actually get something going on the side? So do you recommend people like create a fund or like take a percentage of their of their salary and which could be 10% to, to invest in their idea? Is that the thought? Yeah. So the original thinking on both time and money was what's something that's meaningful, but something that you can do without completely upending your life. And so as I thought about it, the original concept, to be completely honest, was the 20% entrepreneur. It doesn't it doesn't roll off the tongue, but I um, I thought 20% felt interesting. I thought I'll put 20% of my money on the side. I'll use 20% of my time. Didn't you change and it I realized, because 10% is biblical? No, I didn't. Well, see, that's that's why I ended up. But I started thinking, you know, that feels like a lot, like 20% of my money. That's a lot of money to put into something. And then I thought 10% feels right. And I thought about the tithe, right, the idea that many religions have this idea of giving 10% because 10% you can do. It's not – everybody can achieve 10%, but it can have a meaningful impact. And then when I started looking into some of the figures, I found that the average angel investor or person who invests in entrepreneurial ventures in the United States actually commits exactly 10% to these types of opportunities. So it kind of – the market just cleared at 10%. Okay. We, we got to – before I forget, we got to talk about Entrepreneurship Inc., yeah, which I love because I live in Los Angeles, and everyone here is an actor or a film producer that has an app, and they all have these side hustle projects. And I, I told you this before. I work at a co-working space, you know, with a bunch of shared uh, offices for entrepreneurs to work together and and uh, collaborate. And so I'm sitting there, like literally three months ago, and a guy and a girl are making out, each on their laptop, looking into each other's eyes while I'm trying to edit a podcast episode and preparing for a webinar. And I'm doing my business over here 
because it's such a sexy thing to be an entrepreneur now. What is your definition of Entrepreneur Inc.? So Entrepreneurship Inc. or Entrepreneur Inc., to me, it's this this glamorization of what it means to be an entrepreneur. Like if you've never been an entrepreneur, you grew up kind of watching the media version of entrepreneurship and you watch all these people in their 20s become millionaires, billionaires, whatever. You read about all these IPOs and you see all these people who are just a little older than you who are making huge money or like a YouTube celebrity that comes out of nowhere. You start to believe that sort of that the road is a lot easier than what it really is. But the fact of the matter is, and I, you know, I hate to be negative, but it's just the reality of these things. Most startups fail, and that's by that has to be because startups are about taking risks and learning from them, and then you know trying again and again. And so nobody wants to focus on the the sort of unglamorous parts of it. They want to focus on, you know, the sort of glamorous parts. And there's a movie out there that I think is the ultimate sort of rule breaker in terms of just completely misrepresenting entrepreneurship and it's called the apprentice with Anne hathaway have you seen this one no so if you're ever on a plane i saw it on a plane i did not it's see a it plane movie theater. i saw it well it's like one of those ones where you watch like a third of it and you fall asleep then on the next flight you get you sort of catch it up but it's a movie you're about stuck this- in the, you're stuck in the plane so you can't go anywhere you know you're you have to watch it Right. And, you know, everybody knows when you're on a plane, you're apt to cry watching a movie. So, you know, you're also, even though it's not a great movie, you're sort of like tearing up halfway through. But it's about this startup founder played by Anne Hathaway, who's beautiful and never looks tired and lives in a beautiful brownstone in Brooklyn. And, you know, just like it just it's totally ridiculous. And I think those kinds of things aren't helpful because if you know any entrepreneurs or you are an entrepreneur, chances are you're pretty tired. You have bags under your eyes. You're working all the time. Your personal relationships have conflicts because people are like, why are you working all the time? You're failing. You're stressed. You're stressed. Yeah, you're failing. Talk about Mark Andreessen, you know, big Silicon Valley investor. He says failure sucks. Exactly. And you talk about that in the book, how like just failing in general, like everyone glamorizes like, oh, fail fast. Like that's a big advice, right? You start a company, fail quickly. You can learn how to fix it. But failing is painful. It's painful. It's painful. It takes a lot longer than you ever think. And then, you know, you spend the years before it. There's another thing that people love to say in Silicon Valley about eating ramen. You know, we've got to eat your ramen. I got to tell you something. Ramen is so high in sodium, it's not good for you. It's not, there's nothing good about eating. You maybe want to change that for something else, but there's nothing glamorous about, you know, poisoning your body either. And I think that's kind of a funny, a kind of funny, funny analogy people use. Why are we so seduced by this um, image of the entrepreneurship Inc.? Like why, why are we as a culture in America uh, infatuated with the idea we want to run our own company like a startup? I think it's a couple things. Number one, I think is, is in, in this country and many others, the underdog is is appreciated and i and i like that about our culture but the idea that anybody no matter where they come from can somehow overcome the odds and become fabulously successful is an american fable um that a lot of us believe in and are attracted to that's that's one the rags the riches also, stories what you're saying like, absolutely horatio alger that is that that's the american dream right this is the modern day version of the american dream right I think, fundamentally and so do you think this is realistic i mean if in 10 percent of your time needs to go to these activities like are we living like a I hate to be a cold and Caulfield over here, you know, catcher in the rye, like everything's fake, but are we like fooling ourselves as a culture to think everyone can be an entrepreneur? I, so here's how I think about it. I think that all of us need 
it's not about can, it's about need, it's about must. It's about the fact that uh, nowadays, if you really think about, I think Peter Drucker defines an, an entrepreneur as somebody who knows how to make opportunity out of change. We live in a time of tremendous oh, change. Who's Peter Drucker he, for people that don't know? He is a, a management guru. And I may have, I'm paraphrasing, so please do not quote me on that one. But he's a management guru that a lot of people really believe is, is one of the great thinkers of our time. And uh, when I read that quote, it, it, to me, it struck a nerve because we live in a time of change. Technology and globalization is changing our, our, our work uh, situation. The nature of work is changing. Corporations are changing. More than 50% of the companies that were on the Fortune 500 in the year 2000 are no longer there on the Fortune 500. And so companies are winning and Wait, losing. how many companies? 52%. From how, how, how many years ago? Uh, 2000. Wow. Think about that. Yeah. So we live in a world of constant change, a lot of volatility, and you need to be able to function with that. And so thinking like an entrepreneur, thinking how to make opportunity out of change is really valuable. And the only way to learn how to be an entrepreneur is to actually do the work of an entrepreneur. And if you can start in 10% of your time, figure out what it means, and then actually try to become part of businesses that will diversify you and give you upside. To me, that's something that all of us can and should be doing. And the big problem that I see with the world of Entrepreneurship Inc. is that there's sort of a line that people draw and say, well, unless you're all in and you're eating your ramen and you don't sleep and, and you know, you're never going to be successful and you can't be part of our club. And I, I reject that wholesale because I think the fact of the matter is the internet, the flexibility that technology gives us makes it uh, much easier to customize entrepreneurship to your life. Well, and how do you practice this in your own business, in your own life, especially with the book? Because, I mean, let's be honest, I wrote a book and it's hard to make money. You know, it's not a uh, big, big, you, you can get your foot in the door to make money with a book. Um, but how do you fit, how did you fit the 10% vision in with your book? And how does that parlay into entrepreneurship? Yeah, so the book is like the, uh, I guess if you're like climbing a mountain, the book is like the rest stop off the side of the hill. I would not say it's the peak, um, because you know it's it's almost like the, the start. You're like putting one foot on the mountain. It's you right, know, but it gets you on the mountain. Absolutely. So the book was an outcome of my initial batch of 10%. Basically what I did, I had, this is an idea that I developed because I did it. So I never sort of sat down and said, I'm going to start doing 10%. I got a call from a friend one day. He was starting a company. He needed help. He couldn't afford to pay me. He said, I'll give you a share of anything you generate in terms of revenues. I'll give you some stock in the company and we'll see how it goes. That was the first time I ever became an advisor or somebody who invests their time in exchange for ownership in a company. Then from there, so you he started Exactly, barter exchanging, and and it was uh, it actually I made you know decent money on it, and then he started another company a year later, and what he said, "What type of industry was that?" That was um, working with YouTube celebrities to promote videos from big brands. So it was really about the YouTube economy. Was that the Ipsy, the predecessor? Company? Okay, what was that called? It's called Real Influence, and this company. I mean, talking about Entrepreneurship Inc. It was me, my buddy Marcelo was the founder. I was his co-founder, and we had uh, we had. Three other people working with us, one of them who was a programmer, and then two people, Sam and Alexa, who were actually fictional, and they had LinkedIn and Facebook accounts, and we would copy them and send emails just to make it look like we were more credible. I love it. Uh, now, we, uh, I did a lot of work with YouTube influencers, and we actually had super fan accounts, people that were like Hannah Montana fans that were like 
fake accounts in the middle of the Midwest that we would just upload videos to make it look like, hey, all these people are pirating our videos. Like the whole <laughs> the whole culture is just like hustling and baiting and switching because it's like the Wild West out there. Yes, it is. It was ridiculous because we would – Alexia, who was fictional, would get emails from headhunters trying to hire her away. Yeah. I mean I never get those emails. I had to create a fictional <laughs> assistant to get poached away from my company. She's an avatar. Yeah, well, she's, we're still Facebook friends, so you nice. know, we have that we going told, I have Facebook friends, and yeah, I, I, we could talk for a long time about people that w- wish happy birthday to your fake Facebook profiles that you've added. That <laughs> they're like, amazing. oh, I'm going to network with this person, and they're like, wait, this is a fake person you're wishing happy birthday to. So YouTube influencers, I know that space well, and so you yep. were essentially working for equity and rev shares of yes. this company. So you're learning like, okay, this doesn't have to be a full-time thing, but I can still make supplemental income out of it. Right, and basically what I did was I had a list of clients that we wanted to go after and knew people at those companies from college or whatever. I just called them up and we had a little pitch deck. I sent it out and I said, can we come in and have a meeting? And we did it, you know, I think one day here and there or in the afternoon or the evening. I was able to make time for those things. And I ended up actually selling the first thing I ever sold. I'd never sold a thing in my life. I sold a $25,000 pilot that turned into several hundred thousand dollars worth of business. And that kind of changed it really was like turning on a light bulb in my head. I thought, you know, I've never sold a thing. And here I went and sold something kind of massive. Maybe I can do more of this. Maybe there's other opportunities. So that was a beginning for me. And it's like how many years ago? Uh, it was in 2011. So five years ago, six years ago. And so I guess, you know, you talk about uh, in the book the, uh, you know, the, the lifestyle of an entrepreneur and how it really sucks. But in, it's lonely. You're eating ramen. That's not good for you. And ultimately, failure is not fun. So when you're with someone else working on their company and it's their vision and their dream, you know, you're, you're still invested, but it's not psychologically the drain that it is if it's your company. So what exactly. was it like you know, being a partner in that endeavor? Because you could go out and do your deals, but not like have the sleepless nights as much. Well, you know what's so interesting actually is you still really care. Even though you yeah. own a tiny, tiny bit, you get all of the emotional attachment to it without having to worry about sort of like going bankrupt or something. So I found it, and I had a conversation just the, the other day with somebody who is doing a 10%. It's their first one. And they're, they're doing well in it. And this person said, I really hate my job. I hate it with a passion. I really have wanted to quit for years. But I have this side gig. And you know what? I get enough out of that to make all the rest of it tolerable. And so even if you don't, even if you like your job, you get it's incredible how just this this pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and being part of something that's bigger than you and not doing it alone it can actually be a very authentic experience as an entrepreneur totally it's like you work for this idea and like there's a north star in the sky everyone uses it as guidance you know where you're going and you're collectively coming together and money isn't the ultimate outcome always right i mean obviously we want to make money but there's something about building something from scratch that has previously never existed and maybe that's the romanticism also about entrepreneurship is that making something from nothing really is an amazing experience and a great story to tell others. Yeah, and for me, I think I felt that. I felt like we're, we're this is uncharted territory. I mean, I remember, you know, 2011, who was this was just nobody was thinking about this stuff. We were way ahead of our time. So I felt like I was really learning. But more than that, my friend who was the founder, Marcelo, who's gone on to be, you know, very successful in another business that he started, he was way ahead of me in terms of entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial education. He understood the reality of building a company. I mean, 
a lot of uncertainty. And I had never operated in that environment. And I was scared. Like, I would get scared about everything. And he kept me from freaking out. And I sort of had like, a, I was almost a mentor mentee relationship, even though we were good friends, where I learned a lot from him and became a much more entrepreneurial person from that day forward. Yeah, actually, we were talking about this earlier, like I worked at Machinima, which is a YouTube influencer company for gamers. And we helped launch Minecraft. And Minecraft sold, you know, for $2.5 billion to Microsoft and made this one guy notch a double billionaire. Mm. And we didn't make any money off of it. But we did it for the love of the game. All the YouTube influencers started uploading gameplay videos of them playing Minecraft and telling funny stories. And it took off like wildfire. And I saw that. And that was really the inspiration for a lot of the work I did in my Influencer Economy book. But a side element there was I got equity in the startup. And I took a salary hit. So I made less than market value, but I got stock. And psychologically, you know, going all in like that, like I would work weekends, I would work nights. My wife, you know, girlfriend at the time had an understanding that I was going to sacrifice our relationship for the betterment of this big vision. And so I went all in. I didn't have to. And I'll be completely transparent here. I bought my stock when I left. I was there a year and a half. We sold to Warner Brothers for $100 million. That's a lot of money. But our valuation, we were valued at hundreds of millions of dollars. So I lost money on the deal. So I'm taking a loss literally right now. But I knew that going in that it's high risk, high reward. What I love about the 10% entrepreneur is that you can take that risk, but not like I went all in and I had to spend money for my stock and I failed. But you, you're saying that you can kind of have this perspective and using in a smaller in program and still keep a full-time job even. So you're not risking like I, I've got so much out of it. Like we failed, but it was the best job I've ever had and transformed my career. So I look at it like a win, but financially you look at me and I tell my brother about it. He's like, God, you're like, that's a loss, (laughs) right? So it's like psychologically you have to figure out like what's right for you because just having that experience you're telling me really helped you sell, right? And you, you understood business and entrepreneurship a lot more. So I'd love for you to kind of get more in the psychology of how people can, can pilot these programs and talk about, you know, your different paradigms with uh, the angel, the advisor, the founder, uh, the aficionado, and the 110% entrepreneur. These sure. archetypes you made. Absolutely. So one thing I'll just, in the outset, is I'll, is I'll say some people who are 10% entrepreneurs will go on to be 100% entrepreneurs. That There will be a percentage, and, and I don't yet know that number. You know, it's very anecdotal. Some people will never become full-time entrepreneurs because they like what they're doing. Not everyone will, obviously, this this won't vibe with everyone. No, I mean, everybody can do this, but some people will never quit their day job and go full-time. They just won't because they like their day job and it's okay or they make too much money. That's totally fine. It doesn't mean that you can't still get the benefits of diversification and upside and learning and fun. All those things are available to you. But, but, you know, I, I, some people get a little confused about, you know, okay, when do you leave? Well, you don't have to leave. You can certainly... You can certainly stay on just in your 10% doing those things. But to kind of get into the specifics, there's really five ways of doing this, okay? And this is based upon my own experience. And then I interviewed dozens of people who were doing this, and I really found the five kind of types. The first is an angel. That's somebody who invests their capital in a startup in exchange for ownership. Like a startup you know, in Silicon Valley or somewhere else, like a restaurant, like a small business, like a bar, anything like that. Um, so that that that's type one, and that type could be like two. a friend giving you five thousand dollars to start a bakery or you know, a, absolutely a home goods company. Doesn't, 
you don't need to be a millionaire to do this. You can start at thousands of dollars, not tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, if you have the money, you can certainly invest more. But it's a, it's it's really about investing your money. Oh, what do you, so what do you think the word angel means in that respect? Because you're like helping someone like uh, coming out of the, 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 the heavens to anoint them or – I'm curious, like, what do you think that word, because angel is like a pretty common way, right, to talk about that type of an early investor, right? Because you have to buy into the vision and believe in the person. Yeah, I guess that, you know, I've never really heard this. This is an interesting discussion. I've never thought about it, but I do think there is this idea of you are, you are sort of this guardian angel trying to help somebody be successful and also believing in them, and which is, you know, you're playing a special role in helping them achieve their dream. Yes. A seed investor. We could say seed investor, but angel sounds a little bit more, I don't know, ethereal. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. So then the angel, that's one archetype. The next is the advisor, investing your time like what I did with that company, Real Influence. It could be, and this can be anything. For example, you could be giving a company one hour a month to just give them strategic advice or connections. could also be building their website, being a carpenter and building out their store. It could be coming up with a logo. It could be doing the artwork in their headquarters. Like there's really, you know, coming up with their marketing plan. It's really about something that a business would like to buy. It cannot afford because it's a startup. You can be the purveyor of that service and you exchange that service in exchange for equity. And it, uh, so it's not necessarily monetary or what, 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 what's your advice with someone who Someone's like, look, look, help me with my website for free, and you know I'm not going to pay you because I want you to help me, and you'll get a new experience out of it. Like, do you say no? Like, don't work for free. Like, trade. Like, barter? yeah, I, 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 I believe that. I mean, unless this is somebody who you, you know, you love <laughs> or is a close friend, and you're just helping out, and you, you, you want to do that. I, I think you know, if you are, if you do not, um, if you let people. Uh, take advantage of you, you will be taken advantage of. And the reality is, is that we all have skills that are valuable to other people. So, you know, this is the idea. The idea of this is that we want to all find ways to be owners of different businesses. There's real value to having ownership. And if you can invest your money, your skills can be just as valuable or more valuable to a company that's a new venture. So potentially someone, you know, asks you, hey, help me on a website. I don't have any money. Say, that's great. I'd love to get equity or I'd love to get a percentage or you could, you could even negotiate that. Absolutely. The and the person cool who you may be working with that doesn't understand that's a possibility. Absolutely. And you know, it's important to see that someday you could get, you know, either a percentage of profits or that the business will be sold. But the good thing about taking equity, let's look, let's think about a freelancer, right? Say you're a freelancer and you build websites for companies. And one day you build a website for a company that is terrible. And the next day you build a website for the next Facebook or Snapchat or whatever, you get paid the same amount for both projects and that's it. When you own part of the equity, if the company becomes valuable, you get some of that upside. So you are an owner in the business and that business as it continues to grow makes more value for you. And so there's real value to being part owner in, in lots of different things. What's that story about the, the, the guy who was the painter at Facebook? Yes. He painted all these murals in the lobby and then got chairs and made $200 million. Exactly. Or the chef at Google when it went public. You know, he became a $100 million heir because he took equity. So, so I think there's something t- worth restating here is one, charge for your value if you're helping mm-hmm. someone, even if you're just getting started or it's a side project and it's a 10% deal. Two, negotiate for equity 
And don't be afraid to bring that up if there's no money on the table, if you do believe in the vision of, of what you're working on. Yes, and have those conversations and put it down on paper because when there's nothing, when it's not worth anything and it's, you're just spitballing and you're sitting around and everybody's having a great time, nobody really cares. Like you can, oh, take half of it, right? And nobody ever – but the minute that it's worth something, everybody remember – like you think about – I mean there's all these examples. The Snapchat is a great example. One of the founders sued them because he yeah. didn't feel like he had – you know, there's all these stories. When something becomes worth a lot of money, not even that much by the way – all of a sudden, everybody sort of remembers how much they did for it and wants a big share in it. And you want to avoid that as much as possible by agreeing those things up front. And there's a great book, and I don't know if you've read it, Ryan, but there's a book called The Founder's Dilemmas uh-uh. by Noam Wasserman. He um, writes, he wrote this fantastic book about basically how to avoid the pitfalls of setting up your business in a incorrectly from the beginning so the story of zipcar is in there zipcar everybody knows zipcar if you don't um it's a it's a basically a car sharing company the two founders were women who met they shook hands on 50 50 they started the company one of them literally was gone within months the other one took it all the way to ipo they had the same ownership percentage on the day Mm -hmm. of the ipo right so protect yourself and i had a i had an experience where i was gonna work on this wine delivery company it was called core cub and you, can, mm-hmm. you get blind wine delivered to your house, and you would sign up for a subscription. And so the whole thing was winemakers have all this extra inventory of wine they don't sell. <laughs> Buyers want to taste new wines. So we never got off the ground, but I talked to my friend, my friend's like, who I, mentor of mine, and I said, I'm negotiating for equity right now because it's like a 10% project that you, you write about. And he's like, he's like this is not, there's a Nas song. The world is yours. The world's mine. Like, take the world. He's like, you got to tell the guy you want 10% equity. And I was like, oh, man, that's so hard to do, right? Because my friend was like, you got to ask for as much early and realize it's not about friendship. It's about protecting yourself, and then you can work together. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I got really psyched up, and then I was like, I want 3 to 5% equity. And I totally like got nervous. But then at my next real company where there was real equity and I had a real salary, that simulation actually helped me, like, however – random it seems to negotiate my real deal better because like you're saying it's just paper it's just ideas and it's almost i wouldn't say it was role playing but it was something where like i got to figure out like oh my god it's really hard to negotiate but because i did the 10 percent, like you're saying in this hobby of a, of a wine company that never even existed i was like a better negotiator because of it so you, i got a skill from it that's very it's very interesting and, and that, i think that's a, a, a super interesting point because when it's your 10%, the stakes are so much lower that you can afford to experiment, try new things. But those things, they stay with you. They accrue to you. And then you can use them in all the other parts of your career. I'm glad I just brought up Nas. This makes it a very a very good podcast. <laughs> um, so your, your next uh, piece in this framework, is it the aficionado? Uh, we skipped the founder. Oh, the founder. Okay. Don't forget the founder. The founder is somebody who starts and runs a company on the side. So, you know... Tomorrow, you know, the two of us decide we want to start a hot dog stand in Venice Beach, and I basically am the mastermind, and you work in the evenings serving the hot dogs. Okay. You know, we keep our day jobs. So you can still do that with a full-time job? Yes. And the idea there is, 
you know, oftentimes founders will eventually go on if successful and run it full time. And a lot of times they'll, for example, the first year they'll work it entirely on the side and maybe year two, they'll talk to their employer and work one day and maybe year three, it's two days and then eventually transition out. It depends on your relationship with your, with your, with your employer, but, um, you can keep it on the side as well. Sometimes, you know, you have one founder who stays employed, another founder who goes all in and they make a sort of an agreement about the economic arrangement. And, and it's a great way to incubate a business, make sure it works before you jump in full time. What I like about that is that you got to mitigate risk as much as possible because you don't want to lose capital. You don't want to be at home eating ramen. Have you read the book Originals by Adam Grant? I've seen it on many a shelf, but I have not read it. So he has a story, case study of the Warby Parker founders, these guys that make the glasses that I'm wearing. And mm. I just met them, actually. Oh, you did? Last week, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's a billion-dollar company, and they all went to Penn where he teaches. Um so he, uh, he said that they all had day jobs after business school lined up. And this Warby Parker thing was just an idea they were going to incubate and figure out how to see if it was successful. I don't know if you talked to them about that, but they, their whole model was like, we're going to just see how it works. We all have day jobs that we're going to take after school. And he, Adam's theory was debunking the myth that entrepreneurs are risky people. And actually, they're some of the more risk-averse people in many ways. And so your model fits the paradigm of, look, you know, you got to figure out how to not just go all in and risk yourself and set yourself up for worse like failure than actually having a backup plan or keeping your your full time employment while you're piloting all these ideas. Yes. And the thing is, as I said earlier, uh, you know, for, for example, Warby Parker, they probably had some objectives, growth objectives, and they said, well, in year one, we're going to do X number of units. And they may have beat those, but the average startup, it does. I remember there was a professor of mine in business school who said the average startup takes double the amount of time and double the amount of capital that anybody believes. And so if you quit your job expecting you're going to need two years to break even and you need $10 million or even $10,000, and then you get halfway into it, it's taking a lot longer, and you're running out of cash, I mean, you put so much pressure on yourself and your business that it, it just really it, it, it makes the whole thing unsustainable. Right. Did you talk to the Warby Parker's founders about that? No, I think I said something like, "Could I? Can you pass me the champagne, please?" <laughs> um, <laughs> this is at a uh, this this New York Tech event. But next time I see them, I will ask them because because um, that's a that's a great story. That I did not know. Yeah, it's a, it's a well, it's like you're right along that thinking. Adam Grant's a brilliant writer. Um, I so, really is. So uh, let's talk more about the last two uh, avatars, or how, what do you call these personas? Uh, I never came up with a name for them. Types, I guess. Types, okay. Um, not as good as Avatar, but easier to spell. Yeah, so the next two types. <laughs> so the, the last two are kind of su- subsets, really. An aficionado is somebody who is a 10% entrepreneur, but invests in things that they feel passionate about. So it's not just, you know, business per se, but it's about, you know, you love to cook. So you invest in a restaurant and can cook there on the weekend. You love photography. So you start a photography business with your friend and create an online database, pictures, things like that. Um, it's a really about exploring your passions. And that's a big motivator for a lot of people who do 10% entrepreneurship. And passion is so overrated, though, because... Everyone loves to do something. I like to fish. That doesn't mean I'm going to start a fishing company. So the passion thing is great to figure out because you can see if there's a market validation for it, if people there's a demand for what you want to create. And again, you're not going to quit your day job or you're going to keep your lifestyle the same, so you're mitigating that risk. 
Exactly. The, the way I think about it is it allows you to do something you enjoy that you feel strongly about, but in a very professional way that is also potentially profitable. So it's a great it's a great way to take your passions and turn them into business opportunities. What do you call that? Like a side hustle, side project? There's so many terminology pieces out there. I say 10% because side hustle actually was a name that my publisher tried to make me change my book title to. Oh, good, but the, good, this, good, good that you disagreed with that publisher. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, to, to take that overseas, number one. Number two is um, side hustle tends to be associated with the passive income world, like right. set it and forget it, which is this, you know, 10% entrepreneurs are much more involved. They don't do remote control. And so it's just a different, it's a different approach. Okay, cool. And then the last person's with the 110% entrepreneur? Yeah, so it's that 100% entrepreneur. It's that person who is an entrepreneur is making this very concentrated bet, this risky bet in one thing, has all these really valuable skills, skills that are valuable to other entrepreneurs and uses them in order to build a diverse portfolio outside of their day job. And that's great because not only do you get that sort of diversification and upside, but more importantly, you know, given the fact that many entrepreneurial ventures fail, you actually give yourself on-ramps into future opportunities. So like, yeah, the day job doesn't work out, your startup fails. If you've been working with three startups and one of them taking off and you've been valuable, you may join them. And so I've seen that happen over and over again to people who do this. Okay. This is really good. I mean, obviously we think alike and the influencer economy fits right into, you know, what you're doing because ultimately – I'll repeat this again, mitigate risk as much as possible. You know, don't go all in. Don't become this entrepreneurship ink uh, person because it hurts and it like isn't good for your business. It's not good for your family and it's not good for uh, your health, you know, because entrepreneurship is a lonely, lonely world. It is. And I think maybe it's because you're from Des Moines and I'm from Maine. So we grew up in these sort of places where, there was a bit of more of a stable kind of a bias towards taking, you know, stability. But I have watched friends of mine. I see this all the time. Somebody who has made a little bit of money. Um, they, maybe they work on Wall Street or something, and they have this startup dream, and they quit their job, and they try to build their company, and they put all their money into it, and then three years later, they're back at the bank. And you just don't want to end up there yeah. because that is it. Just shouldn't be happening. And my, well, my, so your point about you know Maine and Iowa. My dad is. A franchise owner in burial vaults. Not sexy, but everyone dies. So, you know, he's got them all over the country, and it's he's a small business person, but he he doesn't have the risk of entrepreneurship, but he still thinks like one. And I agree, like you want to keep people out of the position to to going back to the bank in three years. And precisely, and I think I think that's what what this allows people to do and it's also a lifestyle it allows you to do this for the rest of your life so you ever i don't ever want to retire like i'm not interested in the old you know you watch those retirement commercials and the couple is like they're retired and sitting on a beach for the rest of their lives i'm not interested in that i always want to be doing things i want to stay fresh i want to be with people who are mixing it up i want to feel like i can do something and, and contribute to other people's success and so your 10 percent allow you to do that so you never have to retire but you can do it on your own terms um so thanks for coming on where can we find you online 
So you can find me at patrickmcginnis.com, M-C-G-I-N-N-I-S. And there you can actually take a quiz that will show you what kind of 10% entrepreneur you should be based on where you are in your life. You can download a free chapter, sign up for my list, all that sort of stuff. And there's all the connections to social. I have a YouTube channel with videos. I am It's it's all there. So if you, if you want to learn about being a 10% entrepreneur, um, you will not run out of options to learn. And if we want to find you on Amazon, buy the book, we should – I always encourage people to leave the review if you – honestly like the book or you don't like the book of course you're going to like it but just leave an honest review it really helps sell books and and get people trending on amazon to to find it yeah i i, I really appreciate when people and i learn from people will tell me something in a review if they if they are willing to share that actually makes me better at tailoring my message when i think about what i'll do in the future so people we you you may think that nobody you're i can tell you something i go on goodreads i go on amazon i read those reviews i appreciate them if you give me one star i'm a little hurt but um but if that's how you really feel you have to be honest yeah thank you all for listening so much that was patrick mcginnis the 10% Entrepreneur, go check it out. It's a really good book. I recommend it. Mostly it resonated with me because I've lost so much money working at startups and going all in on companies. And this book is helpful to help me and my former self hedge my bets a little bit more. So I really enjoyed it. Um, also check out my podcast on iTunes and leave a review and subscribe. It really helps me to find new listeners. And if you're listening on Stitcher or Google Play or Spotify or uh, Overcast, please do the same, subscribe and review. Also go to my email uh, list on my website, influencereconomy.com to sign up for my list and get the free collaboration workbook for how to collaborate, pivot your idea to engage your audience and build a profitable business. For anyone who's an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur, or a solopreneur, like I mentioned, those are a lot of preneurs. Um, To quote my buddy Larry King, I'm heading over to Duke Zebert's for some chicken in the pot.